As we lay our tables with feasts this week and gather around them to count our blessings, I wanted to offer you all a bit of a treat. It's been a long, hard fall for many. So maybe now more than ever, it seems like people need to take a little care and enjoy a few tasty audio tidbits. I've put together a trio here of yummy, listenable morsels from our Borderlands of the San Joaquin Valley event last spring. This is the fourth Borderlands podcast in our series, so if you missed the other stories, you might take a listen back to hear those. But today, today we'll be hearing two student-produced audio pieces that share family recipes and histories for tamales, which many of you will have heard of, and pambasos, which might be new to you. To close the show, we'll hear a powerful rendition of a Woody Guthrie song about braceros. Braceros, if you haven't heard podcast number three, which is all about the program, were Mexican guest workers who saved the harvest and who filled America's tables when many young men left farms to fight in World War II. Lance Canales, an acclaimed Fresno-based musician, takes us home with that song. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the Calag Roots Podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming in order to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. Check out the project at www.agroots.org. That's agroots.org. Okay, so let's dive in. The first two pieces you'll hear were produced by students at UC Merced, Cindy Cervantes and Omar Gonzalez. They made these fun audio portraits of family recipes after just four hours of audio instruction by radio producer Lisa Morehouse of the California Foodways podcast. And each of their stories tells a little food history, too, partly because they were made for a class taught by a history professor at UC Merced, Dr. Mario Cifuentes. Cindy and Omar graciously agreed to be interviewed on stage at our Borderlands event by youth radio reporter Stephanie Gertel, so you'll hear them talking about their work. They're funny and insightful, and I think hearing them live is almost as good as hearing their audio pieces. Here's Cindy Cervantes, for example, explaining the difference between the food she produced the story about, pambaso, and another Mexican food, the torta. If somebody said that pambasos were basically tortas, what would you tell them? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, tortas for me are really good, too, but um, I would kind of just say, like, they're really different. Like, um... A pambaso is way more messy to make and way more fun to make, and a torta is kind of like a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) See? Pretty great, right? Without further ado, here's Cindy's piece, followed by another clip from the interview with Cindy on stage. Cooking as a child is what kept me busy. I remember having a strawberry shortcake cookbook that I would use. I would make simple dishes for my parents, but the best times I had cooking were with my mom. I loved cooking with her even though it was more dangerous with aceite flying everywhere. I especially loved when she made my favorite, bambasos. First, I wash the California chiles. Then I put them to boil in a pot. Then I put the chiles to boil. It's easier to boil them instead of grilling them because they're easier to blend that way. And then you put four green tomatoes, one red tomato, and two cloves of garlic 
to grow. Then you put two chile morita and one pasilla to grill as well. You take all your items that you just grilled, um, put it in the blender, add about half a cup of water and a little bit of salt and you put it a blend. The pambaso itself does not have a clear history, but some of its ingredients do. In the 1500s, during the Spanish conquest, the Spanish introduced wheat to Mexico. The pambaso bread got its name from the Ladino word pambaso, or low-class bread. During Mexico's viceregal period, bakeries that only made this bread were called pambaserias. Then you grab a pan, uh, you put a little bit of oil in it, and you mince the about half an onion uh, very finely and you add it to the hot oil on the pan. Once the onion is nice and brown, you add the meat. You just season it with a little bit of salt. Or you can add garlic salt. Okay, once the meat is cooking, we're gonna go ahead and grab the potatoes, wash them, and start peeling them. Once they're all nicely peeled, you're gonna go ahead and cut them up in small little squares. When the meat is halfway cooked, we're going to add the potatoes. When the meat and potatoes are fully cooked, we're going to add our blended sauce. Okay, now we go back to our California chiles. They're all boiled, so now we're going to put them in a blender. So you add the chiles, you add about a cup of water, um, and a clove of garlic, uh, a little pinch of salt, and some onion. The red sauce, I think um, you could change the bread, you can change the meat, you can even change the toppings, but you can't change the red sauce because then it just becomes either a regular torta or it becomes just uh, a different dish. The number one ingredient in the pambaso has been in Latin American diet since at least 8,000 BP. The California chile or chile guajillo is a type of capsicum pepper. Mayans were known to use these peppers for healing stomach illnesses, while Aztecs used it as a weapon, burning the dried chiles and throwing them, sending the smoke at their enemy. Now you take your taleta bread and we cut it in half and dip it into the Chile California sauce that we made. Once the bread is completely covered with the, um, with the sauce, we fry it. And then, once the bread is done, we open it up and put the meat in. Well, this dish uh, reminds me of my childhood. Growing up, we would go to church uh, every Sunday morning. And of course, I would hate it because I was small. But the only thing that I would look forward to is going to the local market and eating these with my family. Anytime I think about preparing pambasos, I think about summer. On a hot summer day outside with my family cooking pambasos on our caso and chismeando the day away. And I just remember thinking, oh my god, this is so good. I think other than the taste, um, I think the most important part of the dish is the tradition. Um, just, you know, getting together with your family, um, everybody help in the kitchen and just being together.
Um, I think that's what means more than the actual taste. So if they were to happen to change it, I don't think it would make much difference as long as it's as a family. Although the history of the Pambaso might not be so clear, its history in my family is it's important to my mother and it's important to me because it brings back so many memories and so many times that we've spent together. Cindy, is there any memories that you'd like to share about your bambasos? I mean, there's one that sticks out because I don't go to Mexico often. So one is really where I actually got to go to the DF, where my mom's from. And we tried it there, and then she was talking to me about how that's the place where she went. In the audio, how I mentioned that that's, or she mentions they go there after church. So I just remember that specific time because I know I was eating the same food she was eating when she was young and when she lived there, so it's, that's my favorite. Did they taste better there? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Next up, Omar Gonzalez. Did you help your mom make the tamales? Um, so that's an interesting question I ask myself. <laughs> Do I, does my mom make tamales with my help or in spite of my help? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exactly the best chef, and I've noticed that when I try to help her, she kind of always goes through what I did and like fixes my errors. So I'm not sure if I'm really helping or, or if I'm just slowing her down, but at least I keep her company, and eventually I will reach a point where I undoubtedly help her. When I was only two years and a half old, my mom had left out a few of her chicken tamales with green salsa on the kitchen table. They were for my dad to eat when he arrived home from work. It was his birthday, and she wanted to surprise him with her first ever attempt at making tamales. Her biggest mistake, however, was leaving those tamales unattended. The aroma of the delicious tamales attracted my attention from another room. I took the whole plate with me under the table and began to feast on my first tamales. My dad arrived home confused about there being no food on the table, but heard an infant panting up from under the table. To his amazement, he discovered his firstborn son spiced out with tamale all over his mouth. My parents shared a good laugh, and from that moment on, he made sure to take better care of their tamales when I was around. While I do not remember much from this event, I do know that I have always loved tamales. After all, they're mobile, tasty, and ideal for any meal of the day. Despite all these great qualities of the tamale, there is one obvious weakness. The amount of physical labor required to create. I am cleaning many green tomatoes and green chili peppers to prepare a salsa for tamales. Then we will place the vegetables on the stove and turn on the stove. The vegetables should be left there for about 20 minutes to prepare the salsa. And after the 20 minutes, we will blend the vegetables. Archaeological evidence has tracked the first ever tamale to have been consumed around 250 BC near the Sun and Moon Pyramids of Teotihuacan. Since then, tamales have grown in variety with anthropologists identifying 42 distinct tamale types ranging from the meter-long sacawid tamal to my mom's chicken tamales. Nor are the tamales limited to the Mexican Valley. Unique tamales have been found from the streets of Chicago to the cities of Venezuela. Ironically, with tamales being around for so long, their first appearance in the cookbook was merely 121 years ago, 
in Vicenta Torres de Rubios, Cocina Michoacana. Despite being around for over 200 years, there has been only one constant in tamale production, being exclusively prepared for special occasions. My mom is no outlier when it comes to this historical constant. Every year, she saves her tamales for end-of-the-year holidays such as Christmas or New Year's. Tradicionalmente, en México se, se prepara todo. Traditionally, in Mexico, everything is handmade, but since we are not in Mexico, we are in a place where everything can be easily bought. I went out and bought the masa already prepared to make tamales. I also bought the chicken prepared so I can put the chicken on the tamales, so the only thing I did was make the salsa, clean the tamale leaves, put the masa on the leaves, I put chicken on the masa, I folded the leaves, put the leaves in the pot, and boil in my opinion, the secret to my mom's tamales come from the various influences she took in when crafting her recipe. She migrated to the U.S. prior to learning the family recipe, so she was forced to learn how to make tamales in the U.S. Learning how to make tamales in the United States may seem like a bad idea, but the U.S. is no stranger to tamales. After all, a quick Amazon search of Mexican cookbooks reveals a wide selection of cookbooks written by people with English surnames, which is even more apparent when you filter the results by bestsellers. This was no accident. The San Francisco stand at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition introduced Americans to tamales. Shortly after this exposition, Americans fell in love with tamales, which was seen with the tamale vendors known as tamaleros springing up across the U.S., at the time, Mexicans did not make up big proportions of the American cities, so these tamaleros tended to be made up of European immigrant minorities, opposed to actual Mexicans. These unique tamaleros didn't survive the 1900s. Robert Putnam's San Francisco company IXL, better known as 49, put tamales in cans to provide cleaner tamales than tamalero tamales. The popularity of canned tamales has clearly not survived today. With Americans yearning for truly authentic Mexican food, tamaleros made their return in the 1980s. This time, tamaleros were actually Mexicans who placed that already mobile tamales onto mobile food trucks known as loncheras. With these new mobile tamaleros having returned to the U.S., my mom was able to receive a wide range of advice on how to prepare tamales. An added bonus of these tamaleros being Mexican meant my mom was able to receive advice without having to deal with a language barrier. With my mom buying masa and chicken already prepared, she follows it following the advice of cookbooks written by Americans. While every other step she takes is a mix from countless tamaleras she asked advice from. The result, a truly Mexican-American tamale that is fit for a king. Por supuesto, lo que es la Navidad, la mayoría de las veces, mi mamá Tamales remind me of Christmas. Most of the time, my mom used to cook the night of the 24th tamales because it was her way of celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, my father's birthday. So, había doble celebración en casa y siempre so there se was a double celebration tamales. at home, so we always had tamales. Never once did I take the time to think about how a signature Mexican dish was being consumed in the U.S., nor what tamales meant to my mom. Going back to the days when I was just a wee little lad, I have never missed an opportunity to enjoy a good tamale. From now on, I can fully enjoy the deliciousness of a tamale without questioning the details of how tamales ended up in my tongue.
These two pieces showcase family recipes, but they were also carefully researched in some conventional and some unconventional ways. Here's Omar again. All right, so I'm a firm believer of just getting, um, following the easiest path. So when I was like, as first assigned this assignment, I went to see Professor Cifuentes. I wanted, I asked him for an article, like expecting some 20 page article. Um, and I would just reiterate whatever I read from there. But <laughs> Professor Cifuentes has this reputation of uh, really giving you a lot of work to better improve you. Um, so what ended up happening is he gave me uh, the name Que Vivan Las Tamales uh, by Jeffrey Pilcher. I went home expecting to find some article online, but it turns out it was an entire book. And so I spent the weekend reading that entire book. And there was also another book I drew influence from, Taco USA by Gustavo Arellano. And um, it was a lot more work than I expected, but I learned a lot. And I think it clearly shows on the project. <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting. Um, is there a specific sense of sentiment you feel when you're with your family and you're eating the tamales? Um, so it kind of depends on what type of tamales I'm eating. Uh, so for example, um, you might have heard in the project that canned tamales were really popular at a certain time in US history. Um, for a while, I would try to find canned tamales, but you can't find them at Food for Less, Walmart, Food Max, for good reason, I might add. But one day, a few weeks ago, I stopped by a gas station, and there they were, canned tamales, <laughs> which is already a red flag. You don't want to be buying food from a gas station. But as a college student, I saw that they were really cheap. I remember that they were really popular at one time, so they can't be that bad. But they were also um, beef, which is another red flag, because traditionally tamales are chicken and pork. But you know, it's America. They're probably Americanized. Still not that bad. Um, I uncanned them. And the third red flag was that they were wrapped in paper, opposed to corn husk. And um, I, was, I still had this mentality that they were going to be good. Americans liked them for a long time. They can't be bad. And then I eat them. and. Uh, they kind of taste like the way dog food smells, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so it wasn't really that good. I felt really bad. Uh, I remember going to class afterwards and I was just zoned out. I just felt like vomiting. Uh, but compared to um, the tamales my mom makes, when I eat them, I get a completely different feeling. I feel like it's the holidays, I'm with my family. And so yeah, if it depends if the tamales can or are they my mom's? It's a different feelings. So I really hope we hear more from Cindy and Omar in the food storytelling world. And now we're going to switch gears a bit to hear from another great storyteller, Lance Canales, who takes us out with a version of the song Deportees. It's a really moving tribute to Braceros, and Canales is full of gratitude for the diversity of the Central Valley and for the workers who grow and pick our food. I couldn't think of a more fitting ending to a Calag Roots Thanksgiving podcast. There's a lot of things that shaped our San Joaquin Valley. And, and, and I think the most important is um, that shaped this valley the most is the different faces from all over the world. That's what one of the reasons why I, I feel so proud of uh, the San Joaquin Valley. There's a song that I do, some of you, some of you may know, um, but it's called Deportee. 
Somebody asked me <laughs> a while back, they said, are you ever going to get tired of playing that song? I said, no. I'm not going to ever get tired of playing this song. And if I do, slap me, and then I could get over myself. So a plane wrecked in, uh, a plane, a U.S. immigration plane, crashed in Los Gatos uh, Canyon right outside Kalinga. And uh, everyone perished on that flight. There was four crew members, and then there was uh, 28 uh, Mexican braceros. And during, uh, during World War II, there was a program called the Bra Bracero Program, and um, it enabled uh, workers, braceros, to come and work the land. And um, this particular plane um, crashed in Los Gatos Canyon. And the, me the media only gave uh, the names of the crew. And when it came time to mention the, the uh, passengers, they just called them deportee, deportees. And uh, one of the reasons, wha I feel that one of the reasons why Woody Guthrie, who wrote the poem, um, was so angered is that he knew that there was a Bracero program and, and that the majority of the people, or if not some of the people on that flight, weren't being deported. It was just a... It was just a way for them to kind of disregard uh, human lives. And uh, so Woody Guthrie being Woody Guthrie and being an amazing person and being being living here and, you know, working here in the valley as well um, and visiting the valley, he knew how important it was um, that the Mexican Barceros um, basically shouldered the workforce and uh, and gave so much and uh, and the the hardships that they went through. My dad was um, was a little kid um, in 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 Texas at the time when uh, World War II broke out, and uh, he he had to witness uh, um, them spraying them down with DB DDT before they put them on the truck. So uh, there were some really harsh um, situations that they were they were put in, and then they would go straight to work right after that. And I knew when I. Um, when I when I looked at the lyrics, and Woody Guthrie says, "My brothers and sisters come work in the fruit trees. They they rode the big trucks till they took down and died." And then I realized that my childhood was basically setting me up to do this song, and uh, that's why I'll never stop doing this song. And I'm very thankful to uh, to my um, my mother's my mother's generation, my father's generation, my grandfather's generation. Um, they worked so hard and they uh, endured so much so that I can sit here in front of you and uh, sing it in English and play a little bit of blues music and, uh, and be proud of to be from the central San Joaquin Valley. Anyway, it, uh, here's my version of uh, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos, Deportes. Pay all my money way back again. Mm -hmm. 
Sisters come work in the fruit tree. Rode the big truck till they took down and died. We died in your hills, we died in your desert. We died in your mountains, we died in your plains. We died beneath your trees, we died in your bushes. Sides the river, we died just the same. Look out of my own, the car was leading us. Some of us illegal and some are unwanted. Said some of us illegal and most are unwanted. Mid 600 miles to the Mexican border. Chase us like outlaws, like animals, like thieves. Rescue of these friends all scattered like dry leaves. Just in
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Peace. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast produced by me, Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and the California Institute for Rural Studies. Thank you to Cindy Cervantes, Omar Gonzalez, Lisa Morehouse, and Mario Cifuentes for the use of those beautiful audio stories. And to the Merced Multicultural Arts Center for hosting us on stage that night. Stephanie Gertel is a youth reporter for the We Said Youth Media Project. Thanks to her, too, for her fun and insightful interviews. If you liked what you heard on the Cali Roots podcast, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on iTunes if you subscribe to this podcast. And by the way, I'll make another pitch for rating us on iTunes. It will help other people discover it. We couldn't have produced this story, of course, without the generous support of the 11th Hour Project and the Food and Farming Communications Fund. Thank you.